My name is Kalyani Saxena, and you're listening to Cognitive Dissident, a podcast about politics and minority history. Sahar Salod is an associate professor of sociology at Simmons University in Boston, Massachusetts. She is also the author of Forever Suspect, Racialized Surveillance of Muslim Americans in the War on Terror. But on September 11, 2001, she was just one of millions of Americans watching in horror as planes hit the World Trade Center and the Twin Towers collapsed. In those moments and the weeks after, she was afraid. Not just of whether there would be another attack, but also what the attacks meant for her family and her community. In the introduction of her book, she says, I knew any suppressed religious bigotry would surface after a terrorist attack of this scope. I found myself anxious about the safety of my parents who live in Texas. My mother wears the hijab, and both my parents are extremely active members of the mosque in the town they live in. I knew the mosque would be a target for anti-Muslim anger, and I worried they could be in danger. Sahara Salod was right to be concerned. Not long after the attacks, her father was detained and interrogated by TSA agents. The agents knew details about her father's travel, including where he had been and what he had bought while he was there. Salod describes her father as a devout Muslim, proud of his status as an American. However, after this incident, he was wary and worried that he was being watched and monitored by the government. It wasn't long before he started wearing a pin of the American flag to prove his loyalty to his country. Sahar's father's experience is one chapter in a larger American story of racialization and surveillance, in which the government built on the classic American trope of a traitorous foreign other to justify its expansion of policies that monitor and control vulnerable communities. It is also the story of how the lives of Muslims in those communities were permanently and irrevocably disrupted. In the post-9-11 era, the word terrorism has come to be associated with a very specific image that of the brown Muslim terrorist. Americans have become used to the notion that brown women who wear hijabs and men who have skull caps and beards are inherently suspicious. Even Muslim last names and accents are met with wariness and distrust. While there are many who believe that brown Muslims truly are the face of terrorism, scholarship indicates that this image is both racialized and constructed. In his article, The Racialization of Islam in American Law, Neil Gotanda explains that the trope of the Muslim terrorist is the newest iteration of an old stereotype, that of the Asian American saboteur. This trope portrays Asian Americans as permanent foreigners, forever unable to assimilate and always at odds with real Americans. It featured heavily in America during World War II and was used as justification for the internment of Japanese Americans. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our west coast became a potential combat zone. Living in that zone were more than 100,000 persons of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of them American citizens, one-third aliens. We knew that some among them were potentially dangerous, but no one knew what would happen among this concentrated population if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them citizens and aliens alike would have to move. In the modern era, studies of Orientalism made brown Muslims the new face of the ever-present foreign enemy. In 1990, Bernard Lewis published an article titled The Roots of Muslim Rage for the Atlantic. 
In the article, he argued that Islam was inherently tied to fundamentalism and violence. He was followed by Samuel Huntington in 1993, who wrote an article titled The Clash of Civilization for Foreign Affairs. Clash of Civilizations predicted that the next major global conflict would be between Islam and the West. Lewis and Huntington's articles didn't just exist in a vacuum. They were read by state authorities and influenced policy in the Middle East. So before 9-11 had even occurred, Muslims were already being positioned as the violent enemy that the state needed to be prepared to combat. These characterizations of Islam, when combined with the fact that many of the Muslims in America were of North African, Middle Eastern, or South Asian descent, inextricably defined brown Muslims as the embodiment of the supposed Islamic threat. I feel that Islam has the image of wanting to conquer the world. They want to establish not only their religion, but the Sharia law and all that goes along with, uh, with Islam. And I don't think it's good for America. I don't think it's good for the world. While brown Muslims were already subject to scrutiny prior to 9-11, author Taheen Shams argues that the event made them hyper-visible. People were scared. They wanted someone to blame. And Muslims fit that bill perfectly. Suddenly, articles like The Clash of Civilization seemed almost prophetic. It was easy to believe that the state had missed the internal threat right under its nose, just like people believed it had with Japanese Americans before Pearl Harbor. People believed in the threat then, and they believe in it now. Here's a clip from 2011 of residents in Tennessee speaking out against plans to build a mosque in their area. Everybody knows who's trying to kill us, and it's like we can't say it. This is my concern. Will radical ideas and violence be brought to our doorstep? The state took advantage of this kind of thinking and used it to justify expanding its surveillance apparatuses. As Sahar Salod puts it, a surveillance society can only exist when there is a need to monitor and observe bodies that threaten security. And the threat of an unseen internal enemy fulfilled this need. Every Muslim is a terrorist. Period. Right now. Shut your mouth. I don't want to hear your mouth. Oh, please. I'm sorry. In October of 2001, President George W. Bush signed into law the Patriot Act, which gave the state authority to conduct secret searches on American citizens, monitor their telephone and email exchanges, and collect records on their bank and credit cards. This was a blatant infringement on privacy and civil liberties, and yet it was met with little resistance. And why would it be? The ever-present threat of the brown Muslim terrorist meant everyday Americans believed that they needed surveillance to be safe. Almost two years after Americans and the citizens of more than 80 other nations died at the World Trade Center, we know that prevention works. The Patriot Act gives us the technological tools to anticipate, adapt, and outthink our terrorist enemy. We have used these tools to prevent terrorists from unleashing more death and destruction on our soil. We have used these tools to save innocent American lives. We have used these tools to provide the security that ensures liberty. Muslims were immediately made targets of surveillance by the American government. One policy, known as the National Exit Entry Registration System, ran from 2002 to 2011 and required that any non-citizen man from 25 countries, 24 of which were Muslim-majority countries, be fingerprinted, photographed, and interrogated. 
It also mandated that every non-citizen man over the age of 16 living in the U.S. before September 11, 2002, had to register with the U.S. government. Muslim Americans were as subject to surveillance in public spaces as non-citizens. The Patriot Act gave the FBI funding for a terrorist screening center. The center compiled a database of people who are suspected of terrorist activity. While the list is secret, it has been reported that an overwhelming majority of Arab names are on that list, most of whom are American citizens with no ties to terrorism. The database has also been used to create a no-fly list and monitor Muslims in airports. The level of surveillance was so extensive that Muslim Americans could be sure that they were being watched at any given moment, even if they stayed at home in their communities. In fact, in 2011, an Associated Press investigation revealed that the NYPD, under the guidance of the CIA, had mapped, photographed, and infiltrated 250 mosques and 31 Muslim student organizations in New York. They were so closely monitored that the police knew the names of the student and how many times they prayed. The NYPD also worked with Microsoft to develop Domain Awareness System, a dashboard that gave police access to arrest records, 911 calls, and more than 3,000 security cameras across the city. The police used the system to compile data on where Muslim Americans lived so that they could allocate informants appropriately. While there are some who would argue that this surveillance was necessary to root out a very real threat, the chief of the NYPD Intelligence Division, Lieutenant Paul Galati, admitted that in the six years that he had been chief, monitoring Muslims had not led to a single criminal lead. It's hard for many of us to understand what it's like having your every move tracked and cataloged to be used against you. But that is the very real world that many Muslim Americans have been living in for the last 18 years. And living in that world has had a serious impact on their communities. The knowledge that any mundane action could be used to build a case against them has prompted many Muslims to practice self-censorship. They refrain from engaging in religious activities and rarely voice their political views. Some even avoid joking around with friends. This self-censorship dismantles community life and prevents Muslim Americans from living a life where they aren't constantly looking over their shoulders. Self-censorship is also an unfortunate truth of any surveillance state. When people believe that they are being continuously watched, they will silence themselves before the state even needs to. Although the constant surveillance certainly hasn't made life easy or comfortable for Muslim Americans, it is important that we do not do them a disservice by suggesting that they are passive recipients of the state's control. In fact, many young people are turning the tables on the state and using their hypervisibility to practice counter-surveillance. They know the spotlight is on them, and they're capitalizing on the moment to stage political performances that call for reform. Some young activists have joined with other vulnerable communities to form coalitions that oppose the state's surveillance, in solidarity. So while the racialized surveillance of Muslim Americans is unlikely to stop anytime soon, young Muslims are determined to rewrite the narrative and show us that perhaps, just perhaps, there is power in being seen. 